Well, good evening, everybody. If you're joining us here in our room for the first time, want to say welcome to you. If you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome to you as well. We're just blessed to be here together to worship, to get into the Word of God. And tonight, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5, looking at verses 8 and 9. And what we're going to be talking about tonight is our enemy, the devil. Yes, we're going to be talking about the devil, right? How many of you remember the song that goes like this? In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight, right? You guys know the next line? In the village, the peaceful village, the lion sleeps tonight, right? Nobody knows verse two. But what happens if the lion doesn't sleep, right? What happens if the lion wants to destroy? Well, I don't know if you guys remember, there was a movie made once about that very thing. It was based on a true story, and it showed what can happen when the lion doesn't want to sleep. It was a movie called The Ghosts in the Darkness, and it was about two man-eating lions in Kenya that went on a spree and attacked villages and destroyed lives. And one report was that these two lions, before they were finally killed, had, had attacked and killed over 135 people um, by just sneaking up and pouncing and all that. Really horrible thing that went on. And, you know, it, it's, it was terrible. I don't think people in those villages was singing, you know, uh, the lion sleeps tonight. And so, you know, the Bible teaches us that we have an enemy. We have an enemy, a brutal, attacking, destructive, unrelenting enemy. And that enemy is described for us here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. And so I just want to read them to you real quick. Peter says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Now, this might have been somewhat alarming to hear if you were, you know, the the first recipients of this letter, right? There's like suffering and suffering and suffering and suffering and suffering. Oh, by the way, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around looking for whom he, he may devour. This announcement was similar to one that Jesus himself made to Peter himself one night, if you remember, in Luke 22, 31, where Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Wow. You imagine the Lord telling you something like that, right? You know, I mean, in in our modern day, imagine being at the zoo, and you're just walking around the zoo, having a great time with your friends or your family, and all of a sudden over the loudspeakers, ladies and gentlemen, we wish to inform you that the lion has escaped its pen and is wandering the zoo as we speak. Oh, and by the way, he's hungry, right? We wouldn't be real happy if we heard something like that. We wouldn't be going, a weem, a weem, right? We would be running for our lives. Lions are powerful. Lions are dangerous animals, you know, but, but we see them at the zoo and we think, oh, you know, just looking through the cage, looking through that, oh, they're kind of docile. They're just chilling. You know, they're not, they're not doing anything. But lions are on the top of the top 10 list of the most dangerous animals 
in Africa. A male lion could weigh up to 550 pounds. These creatures are so sure of their power and strength that they will willingly attack elephants. And of course, we know that lions are called the king of the jungle, right? That's a phrase that we've all grown up hearing because they really have no natural predators. The closest thing they do have to a natural predator, incidentally, is crocodiles, <laughs> right? Interesting. Or humans with a gun. But when lions attack, they attack in a certain type of way. They pounce, right? They approach stealthily, very quietly. They use cover to conceal themselves. And then they pounce and sink their teeth into the neck of their prey, suffocating their prey to death. This is how a lion kills. Well, our enemy, our real enemy, the devil, is far deadlier, deadlier than any lion that has ever existed on earth. And so in these two verses tonight, we're going to see four things about our enemy who is described like a lion by Peter. And these are four things that we should know. One is just his identity, his tactics, his range, and his frailty. And so if you'll pray with me, we'll dive into this. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. And we thank you, God, that you are just up front about everything, God. Lord, sure, there are things that are just beyond our comprehension and understanding, Lord, but you don't pull punches when it comes to the reality of our enemy, the reality of Satan and who he is and what his desire is. Uh, for us, mankind, Lord. And so I pray, God, tonight that as we look at, at what you have to say here, uh, what you um, spoke to Peter as, as you inspired him to write these words, God, that we would learn a little bit about our, our enemy, Lord, because, God, it is good to know. It is good to know your enemy, God, so that you can fight, so that you can be prepared, and so that you can appropriately be victorious in the battle against that enemy. And so, Lord, speak to us tonight, God. Encourage us. Lord, teach us. And show us maybe things that we need to do, God to better be prepared for the attacks of the enemy that, uh, as they come against us, Lord. So we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 8. First thing we're going to look at here is his identity, what these two verses tell us about his identity. Peter says, be sober-minded, be alert. And then he says, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. Your adversary, the devil. That is how Peter describes him here. That word devil in the Greek is diabolos. And it's interesting what the word means, diabolos, what that word means is slanderer. One who slanders. One who will attack another by slander. This word is used 35 times in all of Scripture to describe Satan by calling him the devil, the slanderer. 54 times in Scripture he is referred to by the, by the name Satan. Five times he's called the evil one. Eight times he's called the wicked one. And in other places he's called the destroyer. He's called Abaddon. He's called Lucifer. And there, there's a lot of different names for him. But, but the devil first comes on the scene. His first appearance is in Genesis chapter 3 when he appears to the woman to deceive her. And then his career ends in Revelation chapter 20. If you think about that, what that tells us is, is his career, his work, spans the entire scope of human history. The entire scope of human history. Now, some of us may have issue, and some do in our modern culture anyways, as I was reading and, and learning about online, um, they take issue when they hear somebody, whether it's a pastor or anybody, talk about a literal devil. Some people take issue with that. In our modern culture, uh, many simply deny the existence of a literal devil. 
Now, this is easy to consider when you're thinking about non-believers, right? Non-believers deny the existence of God. So, of course, they deny the existence of, of a literal devil. But, but what's interesting is many who identify as born-again Christians in today's culture don't consider the devil to be real. There was a poll done by Barna of a group of people who, who all profess to be born-again Christians, and I found this very interesting. The, the question was very simple in this poll. It said, when, when asked to agree or disagree with this statement, and you guys have seen those before, right? You know, strongly agree, somewhat agree, you know, those kind of polls. This was the statement. The devil is not a living being, just a metaphorical symbol of evil. Now, mind you, the people in this poll were born-again Christians or professed to be born-again Christians. 32% of them strongly agreed with that statement, that the devil is not a living being but just a metaphorical symbol for evil. 11% of these born-again Christians that they polled said they somewhat agreed with that statement. 5% indicated that they were not sure one way or the other. It's interesting because if you total up those numbers, what you have is about half of the people polled in that particular poll that profess to be born-again Christians at least lean towards the idea that the devil is not a real entity, but is just a symbol of evil or a metaphor for evil, or they're just not sure. Just in case I happen to be addressing anybody in this room or joining us online tonight that think that way, I want to ask you a simple question. How much weight do you put in the words of Jesus Christ himself? How much weight do you put in his words? See, because the foundational issue is really comes down to where do you derive your truth from? Do you derive your truth from what modern culture says? What tradition says? What your friends might think? What you're feeling in the moment? Or do you derive truth from the word of God? I ask that question because when Jesus spoke of the devil... He never spoke of the devil as an it, or an entity, or a that, or a concept, but he always, every single time, referred to him as he or him, assigned him personal pronouns. Jesus also said, I saw Satan fall, like, fall from heaven like lightning. He saw him fall from heaven like lightning. So when it comes to the word of God, the word of God is very clear. The devil is a real, literal being. D.L. Moody said, I believe in the devil for two reasons. One, the Bible says he exists. And two, I have done business with him. And I think that might be true of many of us. Peter here describes our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Now, it's interesting because when you think of Bible imagery and you think of the lion, most of us that are born-again believers, professing Christians, immediately think of Jesus, right? We think of Jesus because the Bible calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? You go into uh, C.S. Lewis's books, you know, the Chronicles of Nar Narnia, and you have Aslan, who is the Jesus Christ figure, and he's this powerful lion, right? So it's interesting that Peter calls him here a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. But this lion, however, instead of being up front and in your face, this lion often wears disguises 
Because Jesus describes Satan often showing up as a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? So he might try and roar loudly, he might try and be intimidating, but instead of being up front and out in the open as a scary lion, he often works in, uh, under the cover of deception. He wants to come off like your friend. He wants to come off like a smooth-talking buddy, you know, and that's what he said to Eve in the garden. Did, come on, did God really say that, right? Um, he isn't a friend. He's our enemy. And he may appear tame when we look at him through the bars of the zoo, so to speak, but he is dangerous, and that's his identity. Now, I'm going to get more into what I think Peter is referring to, why Peter uses the lion imagery here in, in a second, but the devil is real. The devil is a living being that currently has dominion over the earth, and we're going to talk about that in a moment too, who will one day be judged and cast into the lake of fire. But he's not just an idea. He's not just a metaphor for evil. He's real, okay? So let's talk about his tactics. Peter says here that he's prowling around looking for anyone he can devour. Now that word devour means probably what you think it means. It means to destroy or to ruin completely. But it's destroying something or ruining something completely pictured as consuming or swallowing something in one bite, right? That's the idea of devour. He just wants to just swallow you up in one bite. Now how does the devil devour people? You need to understand that his number one aim for mankind, his number one aim for, for all of us human beings watching and here in the room, his number one goal from you is that he wants you to burn in hell with him forever. That is his number one goal. John 10 tells us that he comes to steal, steal kill, and destroy. That's his intent. He hates God so much that he wants to destroy anything that God loves. And the Bible tells us that God loves us, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. The devil wants to destroy that which God loves. And we have to understand that hell, the Bible tells us, wasn't made for people. Hell was not made as a prison for human beings. Hell was made as a place of punishment for the devil and his demons. But he would like nothing more than to take as many of those that are made in the image of God into this place with him. He would love nothing more than for that to happen. Now, he works overtime to, to, to convince people that God isn't real and to break up false religions and cults and all this stuff. Anything he could do to get people from coming to the truth of salvation, he works overtime at. However, as many of us in this room can attest, he's not always successful. And people get saved. And they come to know Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, as our Lord and Savior. And they receive that forgiveness and that salvation that he offers them. And so if he can't keep you from getting saved... What he wants to do is to make you a weak, ineffective Christian. Because God saves people, and then he says, look, I want you to go out, and I want you to be the light on the hill. I want you to go out, and, and, and by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony, preach the gospel. I want you to, while you're going through life, be preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, telling people about the hope that is within you, right? The Bible has so much to say about this. And Satan's like, well, if I couldn't keep you from going to hell, I want to make sure that you don't take anybody else to heaven with you. 
That's his goal. He wants to make us weak. He will try try to devour a Christian by making them weak and ineffective as a believer. And he does this by, by weighing us down with life, right? The distractions of life. He gets us uh, distracted with, with, with pleasures and worldly lusts. And, and, and just he, he wants to get us as Christians so focused on ourselves and our own needs and our own wants and our own desires that we forget to think about all of those around us who don't know Jesus. And the idea is this. The devil is hungry. And gullible, poorly prepared Christians are on his menu. And he wants to chew you up. He wants to swallow you up in one bite. He may not be able to keep you from going to hell. But if he could swallow up your life and get you so consumed with yourself that you never pass out tracts, you never share the gospel, you never do anything about advancing the kingdom of God, he'll take that. He'll take that. When it says prowling, he's prowling about like a lion, right? Peter didn't have zoos in his day the way we have zoos today. Those are more of a modern uh, invention. So, so I was thinking about as Peter was writing this letter and the Holy Spirit was inspiring him, wh- where did he get the picture? Like why did he choose lion prowling around like a roaring lion? Where, where did he get this picture from? I don't know this for a fact, but, but it's very possible that due to Peter's own contact with Roman believers and being involved in, 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 in the Roman culture, that he had seen people fed to lions as a part of the games. Peter was writing this letter during the reign of Caesar Nero, who was a total nut job. And by this time in Roman culture, right around this time is when Christians were being so actively persecuted that instead of gladiators in the arenas, they would take Christians and put them in the arenas and let loose hungry lions for the people to just cheer on and celebrate. And, and, and all this is such great entertainment. It's possible Peter had witnessed this at some point. Um, he saw how vicious lions could be when they would attack humans. And, and, and that's, that's just my idea. I don't know that for a fact. But the point is, the picture, is that when he says prowling around, the picture is, is, is of a lion, you know, almost casually walking about, knowing their prey can't get away, studying them, looking for the right time to pounce, and then in a moment, boom, jumping on him and killing him. Now this picture made me think of Job, right? In Job chapter one, verses six through eight, it says, one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? Listen to what he said. From roaming through the earth. Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now it's interesting, you get into the, the, the language, I'm no like linguistic expert, right? But, but I have some cool software that helps me like when I'm studying to say, what did the original Hebrew say? What did the original Greek say, right? Because sometimes the nuances in English aren't really captured by English. And so I was like, okay, what, what, what did this question mean? The, the Hebrew structure of, of God's question here could almost be better translated You have been considering my servant Job, have you not? What have you been doing, Satan? Oh, I've been roaming around the earth, walking around on it. Yeah, I know what you've been doing. You've been 
considering my servant Job, haven't you? That word considered there is a military term. It's a term used of when a, when a general would survey a town they were going to lay siege to, right? They would survey it. They would walk around it. They would study it. They would analyze it. They would look for weaknesses as they were about to lay siege to a city. And so Satan here, we find, is, is studying Job, right? How can I undermine this blameless man? I, what are his weak points? You know, what, when's the perfect time to pounce, right? This is the idea when Peter's writing prowling around. It's that idea of just kind of looking and slowly looking for the opportunity in the perfect time. And that's how Satan works in our lives. I mean, I think we give him so much ammunition, it's just dumb sometimes, right? Where it's like, like, like sometimes we just open the door so readily. It's like he doesn't even have to look for the weakness. We mail him a letter. Here's my weakness. Come tempt me and attack me. It's just, it's just goofy, you know, how, how, how we set ourselves up to fall sometimes. But, but, but we have those times in our lives where we're walking solid with the Lord and our prayer life is good and our worship life is good and we're in fellowship and, right, we're solid. But even then, Satan is prowling around. He's probing the defenses and he's trying to find a way to pounce. One of the other tactics that he uses, you remember the word devil means slanderer, Right? You guys know what it means to slander somebody. That means to say untrue things about them with the goal of damaging their reputation. That word um, adversary, when it says your adversary, the devil, that word adversary means a hostile and accusing party in litigation. That's the picture of a hostile and violent prosecuting attorney, right? I don't have anything against attorneys, despite all the jokes and people have had over the years, right? But, but, but the picture here is this one that's just frothing at the mouth to get you. And so what he's doing in that court of law is just making up stuff and lie after lie after lie and, and slandering and bringing up false truths to try and get the judge to rule against you. In Revelation chapter 12, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And that's one of the ways he attacks us, by accusation. We've all experienced it, Right? You stumble, you fall, you do something wrong, and the thought comes out of left, fee- left field into your mind. Are you even a Christian? Accusation. Do you even love God? Accusation. He accuses us before God. He stands before God and goes, this is who you died for? This pathetic person? Look at the sin they keep doing. Look at, they're not, they don't really love you. They don't really care. But then he accuses God to us. He comes to us and he goes, God doesn't really care about you. God doesn't really love you. He's not listening to your prayers. You might as well stop reading your Bible. He, he doesn't, he's not really your father. He accuses our brothers and sisters in the family of God, right? He speaks into our minds these accusations. Oh, you know, that person at church today, they didn't even look your direction. They must hate your guts, right? And then you start the whole process of, of ruminating on, oh, why didn't they look at me? Oh, no. And next thing you know, you hate them. And they're like, They have no idea (laughs) because you never bothered to say, hey, I said hi to you Sunday and you didn't wave. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I just didn't see you. He accuses spouses to each other. He'll speak into the life of a wife or a husband and go, you know, your your, your spouse, they're, they're not doing this and they should love you more and they're not being romantic enough and they're not this and they're not that and they're not the other. And then you go, you know, you're right. And then you're gonna start accusing your spouse and all it does is divide and destroy which incidentally 
is what he wants. That's what Satan did to, with Job, right? God's like, I know you've been checking out Job. Job's like, he only loves you because you bless him. Accusation. And then the last tactic that Peter points out here, there's more, but we're looking at Peter, these two verses in Peter, is persecution. And we've been talking about that all the way through this book, right? Verse 9, he speaks of the suffering experienced by fellow believers throughout the world. Believers suffer. Believers are persecuted just because they're believers. And the devil's good at it, and he knows it distracts us, and he knows it weighs us down, and he knows it'll get us accusing God sometimes, and it'll get us doubting God, and it'll get us to stop praying, and it'll get us to, to lose hope. And so he's going to pour on the persecution as much as he can. And it's, it's, it's bad today, but it's only going to get worse. And in case you think Christian suffering had to have been worse in the world back then, here's a stat that kind of blew my mind. In the last 100 years, the last 100 years, there have been more Christians killed for their faith worldwide than from the time of Jesus all the way up to 100 years ago. Think about that. Worldwide, in the last 100 years, more Christian martyrs killed for their faith than from the time of Jesus all the way up combined. We're kind of insulated to it right here in America. People being killed for being Christians, that's, that's, that, you know, that only happens you know, in the movies. I mean, that's, that's not even real. And yet it happens around the world all the time. And this tells me a couple things about Satan's tactics that we should just always be aware of. He's actively studying us, actively studying us. And doesn't that make you a little unnerved in <laughs> some kind of way? The devil and his demons are like holding classes on you and me. Nathan 101, how do we tear him down? And they look at every thought and every moment and every action, and they're like, okay, how can we trip him up? We have an enemy that is actively studying us, looking to discover our weaknesses so he can exploit those weaknesses. To me, when I was thinking about that, I was like, well, you know what? If he's actively studying me, I should stop letting him know all my weaknesses, right? Maybe I should stop parading those things and giving in to those things and, and, and say, no, I need, to, I need to buckle down under the fortress that is the Lord, you know, because, you know, if he's analyzing anyways, you know, uh, let me stop making it easier for him because we all have weaknesses. We, we do. There's areas of, our li- areas of our lives where we're all prone to fall, Areas of our lives where we're tempted to fall. We all have them, right? Paul talked about this. You know, man, why do I, why do, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to, right? It's a part of the struggle here on earth while our fallen flesh and our fallen sin nature dwells with our born-again spirit. It's a part of, of what's going on here. Some of us deal with anger. Some of us deal with lust. For some, it's pornography, for some, it's lying. For some, it's, it's the temptation to always play the victim to avoid responsibility. For some, it's, it's being fake and putting up a front all the time to, to pretend there's someone else to avoid this or that. But like I said, if you know the weaknesses in your own life, you better believe Satan and his demons know them too. And whatever the temptation is that he's going to send your way, it's always going to be custom-made exactly for you. 
because he knows what your weaknesses are. Second thing that, that I think all this tells me about Satan's tactics, especially from the, the, what we have in Job, is that he operates within parameters. The Bible is pretty clear that, that, that Satan only acts by the permission of God, and he only acts in line with God's purposes. Some people struggle with that, right? But you have the stories about the demons who, who possessed the man at, uh, at Gadara, and, and Jesus and the disciples show up, and it says the demons begged Jesus, please, if you drive us out, please, 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 let us go into the pigs. They had to get Jesus' permission, right? Then, of course, you look in Job, right? The devil's like, oh, he only loves you because you bless him. And God said, okay, I will give you permission to go afflict him. But there's a comfort in that. There's a comfort in that for me anyways, because even though I have an enemy that is studying me, I have an enemy that is attacking me, I also have a Lord who's over him, who only allows him to operate within, within certain freedoms and with only restricting others. He can only go so far. And this tells me that when I'm in the time, when I'm in the fire of a trial, when I'm in the, the fire of a temptation, God may be allowing that to happen, but God has his eye on the thermostat, and he will not let me experience more than I can handle, right? That's what the scripture tells us, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to humanity, but God is faithful, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. And of course, the natural question is, is like, okay, if God's in control and if Satan can only operate with the permission of God, why does God give him permission, right? Why does God allow him to, to persecute? Why does God allow him to do these things? Well, I mean, there's plenty of that in Peter and the rest of the Bible is God uses these things to refine us. God uses these things to, to refine our character, to mold us and to shape us in his image because we have all these messed up parts of our system, our being, uh, who we are that, that God has to get out and he uses all these difficult things to mold us and to shape us. So we see his identity, we see his tactics. Now let's look at his range. Verse nine. It says, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. There are believers all over this planet that are being attacked by Satan. And what that tells us here is that, that he has access to the entire planet. He has access to the entire globe. It, he's... He's consistent in going after God's family all over the planet. Jesus three different times referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Yes, God created the world, but within the, 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 his sovereignty and his thinking, he, he allows Satan during this time the ability to move and to do. Although Satan is on a leash, he has access to the whole world. The world is his oyster, so to speak. The world is his platform of attack. And you see it, right? You see around the world as it's getting darker and darker and more and more wicked, right? California is trying to pass legislation now to legalize killing a baby after it's born if the parent doesn't want it. It's bad enough, right, in the womb, but no, the baby is, is born. 
is alive, is outside the mother. And they want to make it legal to murder that child and call it abortion rights. How disgusting. And yet, everybody on the liberal side of the things, yay! It's just the world's dark and getting darker. And it's this influence of Satan behind it, just provoking the wickedness of man. And he has access everywhere. Like a lion who, who can in nature roam just about wherever he wants because he has no natural predators, our enemy could roam wherever he wants. And so he roams, as it said in Job. He wanders, he searches, he's looking for prey. And then Job tells us something that's even more interesting, right? That, that we see that Satan doesn't just have access to the earth, but he has access to heaven as well. That's interesting, right? Limited access. But there in Job chapter 1, it tells us that, that, that the sons of God, the angels were called to come before God and give, a, give account, and it says Satan also showed up, right? There was no angel bouncer at the door that said, you're not, you're not allowed here, dude. He was there in God's presence, God's like, what have you been up to? Oh, walking here, walking there, messing with people. But here's something that many might not consider in the timeline of things. As of today, Satan is not in hell. Think about that. Today, Satan is not in hell. He has never been in hell. He will one day be in hell. That's his final destination. And when he gets there, he's not going to be in charge. He's not going to have the picture that the world does. is like, oh, there's God in heaven on the throne, and then there's Satan in hell sitting on his throne in his red tights and with his pitchfork, right? There's no throne. There's no pitchfork. He will be there in chains, incarcerated. He will be the chief inmate. But until then, until then, on God's calendar, he still has freedom to wander. He still has freedom to, to, to work. Limited by the Lord according to God's counsel, but still able to do those things. He commands the demonic realm. The theater of operations for the demonic realm is the human world. And, and that's what we're dealing with here, right? The, this, this invisible enemy in our visible world. And, and he and his demons are active everywhere. They're active everywhere. They're active to deceive. They're active to ruin. They're active to desire. They're active to tempt. And, and although Satan can't be everywhere at the same time, right? He's not God. He's not omnipotent. He's not, you know, able to be omnipresent. He's not everywhere. It's either him or his agents are all over the planet working. Now, when you think about the devil's targets, you know, he has some main targets, and what I think is interesting is, is you and I might think that, that we are the devil's number one target, right? We're at the top of his target list, but I don't think that's true. You know, I think we flatter ourselves by thinking we're the most important target on the devil's list. Because when you go through scripture, what you see that, what I see anyways, is, is the devil's number one target. His number one target is Jesus Christ. That's his number one target. The only reason he ever comes after us is to get at Jesus. Jesus is his number one target, and I believe it's because in Genesis 3, right? Way back in Genesis 3, it's said there. God says to the serpent, look, there's going to be one coming who's going to crush your head, and that's going to be my Messiah, the seed of the woman. 
And we talked about this in a previous study that ever since then, from that moment forward, he was looking for a way to destroy that seed, to prevent that seed from, from coming. You know, God said that there's going to be one that's going to come and destroy me. Satan's like, I'm going to do everything I can to stop that from happening. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, we have this picture of this where it says, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. And this is talking about birth to the Messiah. And it says, so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. Satan did everything he could to prevent Jesus from being born. He hates him. He has always been against Jesus because he knew that the Messiah was going to be the thing that unlocked freedom for mankind. The Messiah and his death on the cross was going to be the very thing that allowed mankind to be set free from the shackles of the devil and to be able to embrace freedom that is found in God. His second target are the holy angels. Because the angels, the holy angels, are the the one-on-one combatants in this battle, right? They're the ones that are literally fighting in the spiritual realm. Daniel chapter 10, it tells us about these heavenly hosts that are constantly battling against the demonic hosts on our behalf, right? Daniel goes to pray. Oh, Lord, I need an answer. And the angel says, hey, bro, I got dispatched 21 days ago. (laughs) But you know what? On the way, the, the, the prince of Babylon, you know, Prince of Persia, you know, intercepted me, and, and you know, we, Michael the archangel had to come in, right? I'm a messenger. He's the warrior. He came in to set me free. And so it took me 21 days to get here to, to answer your prayer. They're battling. They're fighting. Satan hates them too. Revelation 12 speaks of Michael the archangel and his angels battling Satan and his fallen angels. It's a battle. I believe Satan's third target is the nation of Israel. Why? Because God made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, then to David, and so on and so on. He made a promise to them about them, about their land, about the plan of salvation for mankind, right? It was the nation of Israel. It was the Jewish people. That was was the people that God was going to work his plan through, who the Messiah was going to come from. So Satan has been against Israel from the very beginning, trying to destroy this nation. And since Israel is the object of God's plan, Satan attacks Israel constantly, constantly. And then you get into prophecy and you look into the tribulation period, wow, literally all hell is going to break loose against this nation Israel. Satan hates them. And then fourth on the list, it's you and me, Christians, believers, which is why I believe Peter here says he's our adversary, the devil. Why are we on his list to begin with? Well, because we're the object of God's favor. We're the object of God's grace. We're the object of God's love. He couldn't stop Jesus from being born into this world. He couldn't stop him from saving mankind and defeating death. He hates Israel still and continually comes against them, even though the Messiah has already been born. But then he just rails against God's people. Christians. This is why he attacked Peter. This is why he attacked Paul, John, and every follower of Jesus from the beginning until today. So we, we, we've seen his identity, right? He's real. We've seen his tactics. We've seen his range. He's got worldwide access. And lastly, his frailty. You know, Satan can and must be engaged by God's people. 
because he can be defeated in our day-to-day lives, all right? He roars like a lion. But when the lion of the tribe of Judah shows up, he's like, you know, meow. And so we, we need to resist him, you know, and, and, and I, I believe Peter's given us instruction here on, on what to do and how to do that. In the first part of verse 8, he says, be sober-minded, be alert, right? And then in the first part of verse 9, he says, resist him, firm in the faith. You know, the idea here, we, 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 we can't simply ignore our enemy. We can't just go, oh, no, he's just a metaphorical figure. He doesn't exist. We can't just pretend he doesn't e- exist. And, you know, let's just hunker down. And, you know, I'm just going to, you know, just hide myself in my church and, and never engage with, with, with our enemy. You know, you, you can't do that. Some people sure think about him too much. And that's a different issue altogether. But we can't not think about him at all. The point is, is we have to engage. You know, the Christian would love, or the Christian, devil, the devil would love every Christian to just snooze away their life spiritually. I'm saved, so now I'm just going to pretend all this doesn't exist and go about my life. The devil would prefer every Christian to be like, in the jungle, the mighty jungle, the Christian sleeps tonight. That would be the devil's preference. But we're called to engage in this engagement into this battle. It begins with our mind, and that's what I believe Peter is talking about here. You know, it begins in our mind where we think, right? When he says, be sober-minded and be alert. This is how we battle against our adversary, the devil. These phrases, to be sober-minded and to be alert, it means to curb the control of excessive emotions and desire. To not let excessive desire and excessive emotional stuff control you. The idea is to be reasonable in your thinking. To be clear-headed, clear thinking, self-controlled, disciplined. Another way to put it is don't allow yourself to be intoxicated by the amusements and the distractions of this world. That's one of the ways we fight against the devil. The battle always begins in our mind, right? Right? The battle begins in our mind, and then that influences our choices and our behavior. So be sober-minded, be clear-headed, be clear-thinking, be disciplined in your thinking. Don't just let your, your, your brain entertain whatever emotional desires and pleasures you want. It, it's just because it's in your head doesn't mean it's not affecting you. So be sober-minded, be alert. And then he says to resist him. You know, the devil can be resisted. I've counseled people over the years that struggle with, with different sins and stuff, and oftentimes if, if I've counseled guys that are struggling with lust issues and, 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 and issues that are related to that, and they go, you know what, I just, I just can't resist. I just can't resist. And I'm like, bogus. That's a lie from the pit of hell. No, I just can't resist. It's just the temptation, and, and, uh, uh, and I just can't resist. And, and, and the devil wants you to believe that. But the Bible tells us very specifically, resist him. James 4 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But how? How do we resist him? Look what it says. Resist him firm in the faith. Firm in the faith. Notice it doesn't say resist him firm in faith. That article there, the, is very important. He's not talking about your faith. 
He's not talking about you resist him by your, I'm going to resist him. I'm going to do it. I, I believe God's given me the power and the authority to, and, and I'm going to exercise my faith. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying resist him firm in the faith. He's talking about the faith. He's talking about the truth that's embodied in scripture. He's talking about the doctrine that our very beliefs are founded on, the doctrine, the how, the why, the what of everything we believe that has been passed down by the Holy Spirit in the written word of God. Be firm in that and you'll be able to resist him. Right? What did Jesus do when he was in the wilderness and Satan attacked him? He kept saying it is written. It is written, it is written, it is written over and over and over. But you kinda gotta know what is written before you can confidently say it is written, right? It's not real effective when the devil comes and tempts you and you go, you know, somewhere it might be written. God helps those who help themselves. That's not even in the Bible. I mean, just (laughs) the faith. Know the word. Know the doctrines of your faith. Know what you believe. Know the truths and the promises that God has given us in his word. Stand on those. Memorize those. Quote those. Repeat those. And you will be able to resist the devil. And lastly, when we engage the devil, we'll find ourselves, I believe, victorious in standing against him when we do it together because he's weak when we are gathered together under Christ. You know, the verb tense of those phrases, be sober, be alert, resist him. The verb tense in the original Greek is in the second person plural imperative. Okay, what that simply means is that as Peter is writing this, he's not saying you individual be sober-minded, you individual be alert, you individual resist him. He's saying you as a group be sober-minded. You as a community, be alert. You as a family, resist him. He's not giving us individual directions. He's saying do this together. You all together, be sober-minded, be alert, and resist him. And that makes sense. Because when a lion hunts and there's a herd, what do they try to do? We've all seen Discovery Channel, right? They try and get that one weak one, that one baby one, and they try and isolate them from the herd. They try and say, look, you know, we're going to separate you from the family. We're going to separate you. This, this is why I think this, this, this pandemic we have gone through, um, although there's, there's much reality to COVID and all that, I believe there was a spiritual element behind it that it was powerful because guess what? Christians are terrified to leave their house and interact with anybody. Now, you guys are here. Praise God, you know. If you're online, I'm not saying, you know, you're going to hell for being at home. No, there's, there's good reason to, to, to not come at times. And to, but but I've, I've talked to people that say two years later are still like, you know, 50 masks over their face and like, stay away from me. And, uh, and, 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 and to the person, every single one of these particular individuals that I've had the opportunity to talk to are suffering from aggressive depression and anxiety and they have no joy and they're freaking out about everything. And I'm like, why? The devil has isolated people and got them so full of fear that they can't function. And that's what lions do, right? Separate out the one and I'm going to pounce on them. 
separate out the one, and then they're going to have nobody to help. Nobody around them. Nobody will even know what's going on, let alone pray for them. And I'm just going to sink my teeth into their windpipe and suffocate them. We're safer with the herd. We're safer with the family. We're safer together. And if you have to be home and isolated from the body for a time, and that does happen, stay connected. Reach out. Call. Ask for prayer. Call your friends. Call your family. Stay connected to them. Because otherwise, the devil's going to beat you up. And if you think, well, I could just live my Christian life all by myself. I don't need community and family. You're going to get attacked, and you're going to fall. We need the herd. We need the family. So I don't want to close on just the reality of like, okay, we have an enemy. He's, he's scary. He's big. He's powerful. Have a nice day. We'll see you next week, Right? Um, yeah, we have an enemy who wants to kill us. Yeah, we have an enemy who studies us. Yeah, we have an enemy who knows our weakness. But as vicious as he wants us to believe he is and can be, as brutal as, as he can be, as vicious and brutal a lion the devil can be, he's only a second-rate lion. He's a second-rate lion. He roars a lot. He sounds intimidating. But as I mentioned earlier, Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? And in John, in the book of Revelation, John wrote this. I looked and saw the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. That is our truth. That is our reality every day of our life. One day, Satan, this lion will be done away with. He will be judged and locked in hell forever. Revelation 20 tells us that the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire where he he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Honestly, it's one of my favorite verses. Because this malevolent being who has been out to attack God, to attack his holy angels, this malevolent being that has been out, did everything he could to kill Jesus Christ, to destroy Israel, out to neutralize believers who has messed with so many of our lives so regularly and consistently, who works to to bring as much of God's creation, God's beloved creation to hell with him, one day he will be done. He will be locked up. He will be dealt with forever. He will be the chief inmate in chains, no longer able to torment God's people. That's going to be a glorious day. But until then, he roams around, like a roaring lion, seeking out for them those he can devour. Notice it says those he can devour. Don't make yourself one of those people he can devour. Stand, a strong, stand strong, stand against him until then. Until he's locked up forever, be firm, be sober-minded, be alert, be clear-thinking, be disciplined in your mind, watchful and engaging because the truth is, is greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Amen? All right, let's pray. Well, Father, we, we thank you, God, for your word. Lord, the truths of, of our enemy and his influence and what he does, Lord, gosh, to be honest, Lord, it would be easier just to ignore these things. But, Lord, ignorance doesn't help. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that as we come across verses like this in your word, Lord, together, congregationally, God, or whether we're studying in a small group or on our own in our devotions, God, 
I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, Lord, to one, you included it in your word for a reason. You included it in your word so that we would read it and study it. And so, Lord, that we would do that diligently and receive the intent and purpose of that study, God, that we would be prepared, that we would be ready. Lord, we know the devil is real. We know that him and his demons are working diligently to slander us, to accuse us, to accuse us to you and to accuse you to us, to accuse our brothers and sisters to us and us to them, to accuse wives to husbands and husbands to wives and everything in between. Because division is his tactic, Lord. Lord, he will try and divide the family of God through persecution, through suffering. Lord, and I pray, God, that with clear heads and clear minds and clear thinking, Lord, we would be aware of his effect and his influence. We would be ready and alert for it. That we would be well-grounded in, in your word, God, your truth, Lord, that we would be able to resist him because we are firm in the faith, God. That we are steady and grounded in the promises that you've given us, the truths that you've given us, Lord. That following your example, Jesus, we would be able to say to the devil when he tempts us, no, it's written. And we would just be able to respond with your promises. God, we know that the devil is studying us and prowling around and just looking for an opportunity to pounce, Lord. And so help us, God, not to give him one. And Lord, when we inevitably give him one, because we're done that way. God, may we be able to just turn to you quickly, that we be able to come out of the fires of those trials, the fires of those temptations, God, knowing that, Lord, you may be allowing those things. And Lord, suffering is exactly that. You're aware, and we know you allow these things to happen in our lives to mold us and to shape us, and so help us to learn the lessons quickly. Help us to learn what it is you're trying to get us to learn through these trials and through this suffering so that we would get past and move on and be more like you. God, help us to not ignore the plight of the world around us, but to be people who, who literally are those lights on a hill, Lord, shining forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because heaven is real, hell is real. You are real. The devil is real. Angels are real. Demons are real. God, but what's also real is salvation, forgiveness, peace, hope, and joy that is found in you. Help us to walk in those things, Lord. And although we may be attacked, Lord, to never forget that we are more than conquerors because of you who works in our lives. We love you so much and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Let's worship.